Since 2016, I have been, had the wonderful opportunity to preach God's Word for us on New Year's, which is awesome. I love that. Uh, that way, Mark doesn't have to cancel church on New Year's. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> It's hard choosing a New Year's sermon uh, because, uh, I, I mean, I love it. I'm not complaining. This is not me complaining. But it's like basically normally the way things go, and it didn't even go this way this year, but it's like we have our normal sermon series and we take a break. We do Advent. We do like a few. And then like New Year's is like right in between Advent and getting back to normal. And so it's like a one, one off. So it's just like, hey, what do you want to talk about? Which sometimes it's like, yeah, I have something I want to talk about. And sometimes it's like, man, there's like a million things I want to talk about. How do I choose one, you know? Like I have to go through the process of thinking, okay, what's a way to meaningful, really, meaningfully re- reflect on the last year and give a charge to the church for the new year to come and take inventory of all God has done and all the hard things we've all walked through as a church and all the ways that God is working and trying to put all those things together and then I have every passage of scripture to potentially choose from and I'm just like, which is the right, where do I go with this? What is it? It's so hard for me to finally make a choice of like, okay, I just, I just have to choose a passage and go with it at some point. Thankfully, the Lord has been faithful to give me direction before I preach, but it's hard to make a choice. Um, choices, making, making a significant choice like that, there's lots of things to weigh. We all know about making lots of choices. We live in the bustling metropolis of Winona Lake. There's all kinds of choices laid at your feet. And that might sound sarcastic, but we really do have endless options, don't we? If you don't believe that, go to the grocery store and see how many different brands of each specific item there are. Which grocery store are you going to choose, first of all? Are you a Myers person? You an Aldi person? You an Owens person? Uh, Kroger, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, which, which are you going to choose? And then once you're in the store, you're in the shampoo aisle, and there's nine different shampoos. And they're all the ones most recommended by hair care professionals. Uh, my, my wife, she is just, she takes every choice that our family makes so seriously. She, uh, her grocery shopping, thank the Lord for Aldi. They have one brand of everything. That is... That has saved her. I mean, before we started shopping at Aldi, now this is hyperbole, but it's almost like I'd get a call while she's in an aisle like, Jake, trying to make a choice between two brands of cheese here. What, do we, what should we do? Uh, you know, she just trying to choose which one is the healthiest or the most cost effective. Do we like the taste of this brand? You know, you're making all of these choices. There's so many things we put into consideration to make the choices we make on a daily basis. We are masters at making choices. We make choices all the time. But we recognize when we go to the scripture that God has chosen us. He chose us. You were chosen by God. That's what scripture says. Why did God choose you? Why did he choose me? What process did God go through in choosing us? For what purpose have we been chosen? Was it like pick up basketball or something? And he's like looking at each of us in a line like, oh, this guy, Mark Goodwin, he's going to score a lot of points for me. I'm picking Mark. No, it's not like that. If it was like that, you know, there, there would be lots of us that weren't, any, none of us would be picked. 
None of us would be picked, right? None of us are, none of us come to God and are good enough to be chosen by him. So how, why, why does God choose us to receive his grace? How does, what, what is, why does he, why does he choose us? Why were we chosen? Let's turn to 1 Peter 2 and talk about that. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. So turn there. Uh, we're going to be all over 1 Peter though too because again dropping into the middle of a book I kind of want us to see the landscape of the whole book because really this the, the whole message of 1 Peter 2.9 can be summarized in these kind of two verses in, 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 uh, or in the whole message of 1 Peter can be summarized in 2.9 and 10. So Peter is the one who's writing the book. Peter the apostle of Jesus right? Um, he's writing it in verse 1. It says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to suffering believers that are Gentiles that have been called out of their old way. He calls them elect exiles. That's kind of a fancy term, uh, but it's that it, it has like a lot of Old Testament theme to it. Uh, Exiles being people who are, they're a people that don't have a place. They are wandering. You know, they don't, they're not, they're kind of rejected by the world. They don't have a, a permanent place to call their home. Exiles. Elect being chosen. Uh, you know, for, I recognize there's kids in the room. They might not understand what the word elect means. It's like the, the, the people God has chosen who don't yet have a place. There's lots of themes that, lots of Old Testament, uh, Testament language that gets read throughout this book, though. It talks about us being a temple, offering sacrifices, being a priest, like we're going to be in our passage today. That's a theme that he continues on. But he's showing, through using this kind of language, that, because he's not writing to Jewish believers, primarily, he's writing to actually Gentile believers who have been called out of their old way. And he's applying the same, these, these principles that, that God was faithful to his people Israel, that who he had chosen for his purposes, and he's going to be faithful to the church the same way. So, um, these, are the, yeah, these believers are suffering, and uh, that's, they're, they're not just, yeah, they're Gentile believers who are called out of their old ways and they're suffering. Peter uh, writes this in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed the last time. This is you, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you may have you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying basically there that they're suffering, and he's wanting them to point. He says, "Look forward to a hope that is imperishable." He says, "A living hope." An inheritance that cannot be taken away from you, that's guarded for you. He's putting, he says, you're suffering right now, but look forward to the, the promises of God for you. 
and live in light of those promises and not in light of the suffering right now. And even recognize that this suffering is a gift in and of itself. It's testing you uh, that, that you would be, that, that would result more in the, the, the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ, that your faith would. It's testing your faith. So he goes on throughout the book to, to call them to endure through these trials based on the precious gift of the gospel. Peter exhorts believers' conduct to be shaped by the gospel. He wants them to look at how their conduct, the way they live, is being shaped by the gospel. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, to prepare their mind for action and to be holy as God is holy. And why does he, do, why does he call them to do this? If you look at verse 19, it says this, that they were bought with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb Without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. So he's, he's saying, you were bought with such a great price that prepare your minds for action, live it wholly because your life has the value of Christ's blood on it. He finishes off that chapter, chapter 1, by exhorting them to love the family of God. He says that this family is an imperishable family, that they have a perishable family, family that is just that will last as long as you're alive here on this earth, right? Your, your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters, that last, last now. But the family of God is our God's children forever. He said, this is the important family. So live in light of how this family and these promises of God will never die. And... and speak to one another according to God's word and not and to and to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander he says that in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 so he's gotten to this point now and he he, he tells them to in verse 2 of chapter 2 like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation so he talks to them to long for God's word, the pure spiritual milk, and to grow and mature. Don't use your words that are going to hurt and tear one another down. Keep God's unfailing, unfading word in your mind. Long for God. See that the Lord is good. Be transformed. Grow in maturity and speak to one another according to that word. And then he points to the purpose of the word, the very focal point of the word, Jesus, right? He says, that he was a living stone rejected by God as precious, or, or rejected by men, but chosen by God. And that we are being up, built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer, offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about how we have, although we have been rejected by the world, we are chosen by God for honor. And those who reject Christ have been chosen for shame. That brings us all the way to where we are in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. So let me read these passages for us, this, this passage for us this morning. It says this, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. Good job. You guys are remembering that.
So a few things to note from 1 Peter 2.9 before we start really looking in, in depth at how does this, what does this word mean. Uh, he borrows language from a couple different passages of scripture. Deuteronomy 7. Uh, he, this, is, this is Moses talking about the, the giving of the law. He says uh, in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore the Lord your God is God and faithful, the faithful God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So Moses' point there is saying, you are a chosen people by God, a chosen race by God, and God chose you not because of you. He didn't choose you because you were so good. He didn't choose you because you were such an impressive people. There was more impressive people on planet earth that God could have chosen at that point, but God didn't choose them. He chose the Israelites for his own glory because God loved them and because God made promises to them that God was going to be faithful to. So it wasn't about them, God's choosing of Israel. It was about God and showing his glory. So Peter takes this same concept and he says this to, this to the church. He says, God has chosen you as his chosen race. Not because of anything impressive about you, but because God wants to get glory through you. God wants to keep his promises and his faithfulness to you. He also borrows language from Hosea. 2, 16 through 23. Now, the setting of Hosea, if you don't know, prophet Hosea is called to marry an unfaithful wife, a temple prostitute. And she goes and loves other men. And he's called to go buy her back and to love her. They have children that are called no mercy and not my people. But then the Lord gives this promise of hope. In 2.16, he says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will, be, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of, the, birds of heaven, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know I am the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil. And they shall all answer Jezreel. And I will sow for her myself, I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. 
So God uses Hosea's life as an illustration of unfaithfulness. The, the, the Israelites are the unfaithful wife who, though God has promised to love them and they have promised to love God, they have been unfaithful and given themselves to the Baals, to the idols. But God said, I will be the husband someday, like Hosea is the husband who goes and buys back his wife. I will come buy you back regardless of how faithful you are. And in that day, those who were not my people will be my people. And those who have not received mercy will receive mercy. And we see that language applied to the church here in 1 Peter 2. Peter's main point then is that God has chosen to show us mercy, not because we were so worthy to be chosen, but because he is the great merciful husband who buys us back even when we don't deserve it. So that's why Peter is sharing this with these believers who they, they have been rejected by the world. They're exiles. Can you imagine being a first century Christian? Can you imagine being in the church when literally most of the world is not Christian, does not know, has never heard about God? You are some of the few people in this first generation of the church. You are literally different than the entire rest of the world. And you're, being, you're feeling what Jesus felt. You're being rejected by the rest of the world. We still feel suffering and rejection from the world based on our faith today. But I can imagine the isolation they felt then. He said, you were a people. You were once, you were once like the rest of the world. But now you're rejected by the world. Even though you've been rejected by the world, you've been chosen by God. Rejected by the world, chosen by God, loved by him. Not because of anything that makes you worthy, but because... God is a gracious God who keeps his promises and shows his love to people who are unworthy. Peter does that so they can have eyes on their new identity and and have strength to live and suffer. Why do we need to hear that message today? You have new identity in Christ. You have been chosen by God. God wants to get glory through your life as an object of his love. And we need to remember how loving and gracious and merciful God has been to us so that we can rightly show his glory to the rest of the world. So I'm going to ask, my, my, my two main points today are both going to be questions. Uh, and they're both actually going to be the same question uh, we, used to, we used to do this thing in youth groups sometimes where I would tell kids to ask people where they're from. I'd say, go up to some random stranger and say, where are you from? And the person would be like, oh, I'm, uh, I'm from Tennessee. And then you, you, you say, you just change the inflection of the question once. You say, no, no, where are you from? Oh, no, no, I'm from Redeemer Church. No, no, where are you from? You know, a, a, ch- a question can change and say they would ask the question a bunch of times and just be totally annoying to whoever this random person was. But a question, the point is, a question changes meaning by, based on the inflection. Please keep sending your kids to youth groups. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So my first question is, why did God choose you? Why did God choose you? This, we're going to be talking here about the doctrine of election because it's right here. It's all over this passage. 
there's the, all the, the words that deal with election. We've got the word elect, right? Elect exiles in one verse three. Chosen, you are a chosen race in two nine. Uh, you look back even at two eight. It talks about those who disobey the word. They were destined to obey the word. Two, that's in two eight. Uh, we're a people for his own possession. Looking again at 2.9, we're, we're his, his own possession. We were called 2.9 out of darkness into marvelous light. Called, elect, chosen, destined, people for his own possession. It's all over this passage. If we're going to rightly understand the identity we have in Christ that is transformational and allows us to be uh, to be priests for him, we have to understand what's, what does this doctrine of election mean. For those of you who don't know when I, when I mean the doctrine of election, I mean that it's, it's simply the fact that God chose who he would save before time began. That's a simple way of talking about the doctrine of election. God chose who he would save before time began. So why did God choose you? There, here's a few things we can learn about election from this book of First Peter. You could not accomplish. These are, these are truths that, that we get implications of the doctrine of election. You could not accomplish being saved on your own. You had to be chosen by God, and he had to accomplish the work. Look back at 119. It says, again, that Jesus, we are saved by the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. We have blemishes or spot. We could not be saved. We could not be enough to receive God's glory on our own. Jesus had to die in our place so that we could receive his righteousness. We could not accomplish it on our own. Or 2, 24 through 25. Look, at, look there. First Peter 2, 24 through 25. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Our salvation is not something that you and I could accomplish on our own. The price was far too great to, be, to, to offer anything to God that would, would, that would pay for our sins. There was only one precious gift that was enough to satisfy God's wrath against our sin, and that is the precious blood of Jesus. If God had to choose me to show his grace to, because there was nothing I had that was enough. The only thing precious enough to save me was Jesus. You could not have learned it on your own. You couldn't have come to, you weren't, you're not smart enough to come to the knowledge of God on your own. The Bible talks about this. It says that you were once living in ignorance. 1 Peter 1.14 says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God called you out of your ignorance. He didn't call you out of your wisdom. You didn't learn enough to come to know God and therefore are transformed. God, God showed himself, called you, showed, him, showed you the truth of the gospel when you were living in darkness, right? He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It says that right here in verse 9. You were ignorant and living in darkness, and God called you into the light. 
You could, so you could not accomplish it on your own. You could not have learned it. God showed it to you. You were not worth it on your own. But his love is unconditional. That the fact that we are chosen by God, he showed us mercy while we were still sinners. God showed you and I mercy when we were still running from him. You were not, the, the whole point, both of those passages, the Deuteronomy 7 and Hosea 2, both of them point to the fact that, that our salvation is not something God, it, it's not that God looked down and said, because they are so valuable, because they are so much more worth it, I'm going to send my precious son and give my life for him. It's not our worth that determines our, our uh, salvation we were not worth in that sense where you put Jesus on one side of the scale and put the rest of humanity on the other side of the scale. We don't measure up to his glory and his worth. But God shows us to show the glory, to show his own glory. It is 100% accomplished. It, it cannot fail. Jesus has accomplished for us Everything we need in salvation. If you look back at verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's God who caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven, and by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed to you in the last time. God keeps the salvation. He accomplished the salvation. It will happen. It's 100% accomplished and cannot fail. That is a truth that cannot be taken away. So, and this is all for God's glory, right? God, that's what it says here at the end of verse 9. It says, we are a people for his own possession to proclaim his excellencies. The whole purpose of our salvation and God choosing us is so that we could be objects for his glory. And this is not God being an egotistical God, thinking um, that it's, it's all about him. He wants, it, that he just wants a bunch of, bunch of attention. The, it's actually what, what is our best in mind as well. God wants all the glory because that is what it, that's what creation was made for and that's what we were made for and our greatest joy is found in giving God glory. Listen to what he does for us. He calls us out of darkness into marvelous light. He calls us to proclaim his excellencies. He wants you to see how excellent he is. He gives you a he makes you a royal priesthood. This is all the gifts God has shown you so that he could get glory. So God's glory is our best interest. It is God showing us his unconditional love and mercy and grace. So thank God that salvation is not about me. Here's some false implications of collection. Or of, not of collection, of election. <laughs> False implications of election. Some people hear the doctrine of election. They hear that God has chosen them. And they say, okay, well, that means 
I, you know, maybe it does, it like, I never needed to respond to God. I've always been a believer um, that since before time began, he chose me. It wasn't up to me, so nothing has changed in my life. I was born a believer. I'll always be a believer. That's the way it is. And in one sense, we can see that that is, that, that, that God chose you before the foundations of the earth. That's, that's true. But in another sense, you have been transformed. It says in Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's a point in each and every one of our lives, if you are a believer, where God transformed you, he pulled you out of darkness and into light. Every single one of us starts out in darkness and ends up, if you are a believer, you end up in light. And that takes God's transformation of you. It doesn't, another false implication is it doesn't matter if you respond to the gospel, right? I don't have to believe. I don't have to um, repent. There's, there's no, if, if this is true, I just know it's true and God has saved me and that's the end of it. You know, it doesn't matter whether I respond or not. No, clearly we still need to respond to the gospel. Um, verse, uh, chapter two, verse seven, it says, so honor is for, the, for you who believe but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So they must believe in order to be honored with God. You must respond to the gospel with belief. Now, this is empowered by God, right? God, if God shows you, he's the one, right? We, we, we already looked at this in 1 Peter 1, 3. He's the one who has caused you to be born again. He's the one who has caused that. But as God transforms our heart, enables it to go from stone to flesh, he allows us to believe in him. And everyone who has been transformed by God will profess belief in Christ and will repent and will respond to the gospel. Some people look at the doctrine of election and say, okay, so what's the point? What's the point of sharing it with people? So some people are hopeless and some people aren't and God doesn't need me to share it. He's just going to save whoever he does and that's, that's just a fatalistic view on the lost. That's also not true. We can see clearly here that we are called to preach the good news to those who are in darkness and lost so that they could believe in Jesus Christ. Right? We're called to proclaim the excellencies the same excellencies of the mercy of God that called us out of darkness, we're called to proclaim those excellencies to the rest of the world, to let them know that they can live in marvelous light. That there are called verse one or chapter one, verse two, it says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. In order for them to have heard it, they needed the good news preached to them. Everyone who has ever believed has had the good news shared with them at some point. This is God's means of calling people, and we do not know who is saved, and, or who, we, do, we do not know who is elect and who is not elect. So we have to preach the gospel to all and pray and ask God to change hearts. We are totally dependent on him, but we do not know so we can believe that anyone who we share the gospel to, no one is too far beyond God's grace. We can only actually have, have faith that anyone will ever be saved because it is God who com accomplishes the work completely by himself. 
So we must continue to share. This is a core doctrine for us as a church. We talk about sometimes the seven shared values of sovereign grace. And the first, the first one we often talk about is reformed soteriology or the belief that God is the one who is the primary worker in our salvation. This should not make us proud. This should not make us passive. This should make us humble. Because we recognize that without God's grace shown to us, we would never. We, if, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't for God choosing us and calling us and transforming our hearts, causing us to go from, life, from death to life, we would never have come to God on our own. That is a humbling doctrine. It's also one that causes us to worship, right? Look at what God has done. Look at, look at the expansiveness of his grace in my life. Everything, every good thing, everyone who has come to believe, it is only completely by the work of God in our life. So we offer praise as we look at each other and we see each other as objects of God's grace. This should humble us and cause us to worship. It should expand our view of God. I will say this. I don't believe that the doctrine of election is a doctrine that is a make or break doctrine. What I mean by that is I, I think we can definitely have fellowship with, with other believers who would say that they, they don't hold to the doctrine of election. However, I would also say that scripture is very clear that God is the one who has chosen us. And so we should strive for sameness of mind. As we study the scripture and we see truth in scripture, we shouldn't say, well, let's just agree to disagree. Let's continue to go to God's word and be sharpened by this. And I believe that God wants us to look at this word this morning and recognize that we have, ident we have a identity in him as those who have been chosen by him. And that should, that should humble us and cause us to worship him. As God's chosen, he uses a few other words besides chosen here. I've only gotten to chosen so far. You are, you are a chosen race. Let's stop at race here. Race is your perishable identity. It is the, what is skin deep, right? It, you, it is who you are in this world. You are no longer, as God's chosen race, defined primarily by who you are in this world. As God's chosen race, you are called out of this world, and now you are under the race of God's people. No matter if you are a, in a relationship, or if you have employment, or your family status, or any of your physical attributes, none of those things are your primary identity anymore. Your primary identity is God's people. You are God's chosen race. This dying to our old way of life, our old race, our earthly race, and this life to this new, this new way, this, this new identity as God's people is the picture of baptism that we celebrate. We are now dead to our old way of life. We are now alive to Christ. We are a royal priesthood. Royal meaning we are children of the king. We have received honor when we shouldn't have received honor. 
One of the best pictures I think of in Scripture when I think of this, this, this term royal is 2 Samuel 2.9 where it talks about Mephibosheth, the, the grandson of Jonathan. He was, he was the rival ancestor of the, the former king of Saul. So any king would normally just wipe out a rival ancestor. But David calls Mephibosheth in before him and shows him grace and gives him a seat at the table we do not deserve to be at the king's table. We are his enemies, but God has invited us to be children of the king, to be a royal priesthood. What do I mean by priesthood? Well, I think the best way is described right here in, in this verse, in 2.9, that we are proclaimers of his excellencies. Now, a priest was the representative of God to the people and the people to God in the Old Testament. Uh, so they were the, the ones who were proclaiming God's excellencies to the people. Which brings me to my second point. So we talked about why did God choose you? Now the second, the, my second point is why did God choose you? What, for what purpose have we all been chosen by God? Those of us who are in Christ. That we be a proclaimer of the excellencies of God. Peter has just, if you, if you, might, if you might be thinking, okay, what does it mean? Like God is excellent in a, in a lot of different ways. What, what, what excellencies of God are we supposed to proclaim? Well, we can proclaim them all. But Peter has just given, given us an amazing list of how excellent God is right here in this passage. He says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's pretty excellent, isn't it? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That's pretty excellent, isn't it? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The most excellent work of God is the mercy that he has shown us through the death and resurrection of Christ. So our life should display that we have been saved, that we have been called out of darkness, that we have been made his people, that we have been shown mercy. If you read the book of 1 Peter, there's a lot of instruction on how to live. You can look through, there's, the word conduct is used more in 1 Peter than it is in the rest of the Bible. It's used, the, the word for conduct is found 24 times in the New Testament, but it, 11 of those times it's used here in 1 Peter, in this short book of 1 Peter. So there's a lot of instruction on how to live, but I think it's important for us, before we go on, when we talk about when we talk about what our purpose for being saved, why God has chosen us to be saved, it's not so that we can know all the right things to do and the wrong things to do. Surely we as Christians are called to be obedient to God, and I'm not, I'm not saying that we aren't. But the primary reason that God has saved us, according to this passage, is so that we would proclaim his excellencies. We, our identity should be shaped by how great and excellent God is. It's not... Our, our, we're, he didn't call us just so we know what to do and not to do, but he called us to show how excellent he is. So as those who have enjoyed his excellencies, we get to proclaim it. I mean, I was thinking about uh, other, other times in life where you're just so overcome by how 
how much you love something. You share, I, I share it with somebody else. And you're like, oh man, you gotta get on this kick. I'm big into kicks. I get into, I get into fads and kicks all the time. And anybody who knows me right now knows my big kick is cold showering. It's, it's weird. But my dad did it, and he's got basically anything my dad does I think is awesome. So I started trying to do it, and I started to see all these results. I'm really, I'm really happy about this. So I talk to everybody, especially like office. I'm talking to people about cold showers or whatever, and I start trying to get people to do this. Like, oh, you got to try it with me. Man, this is awesome. You'll have all this more energy, and the white fat turns to brown fat, and the endorphins, and I just go on and on. Ben told me I need to talk more about Jesus than I do about cold showers because I just I get so obsessive about this stuff. <laughs> but I saw how great it was, and so I started sharing with people how much, how great it was. Because, one, just because I'm so excited about it, but two, because I want them to experience that with me. You know, how much greater is what we have received in Christ than whatever fad you might be. If, but the, the point being is, if you really love something and you really see something as excellent and life-changing, as pulling you out of darkness and into marvelous light, as receiving mercy when you had no mercy, as a total new identity, a whole life-changer, you're gonna talk to people about it. You're gonna proclaim how awesome it is because you've experienced how awesome it is. So we are proclaimers of his excellencies. And I think this identity as proclaimers of his excellencies and priests is, is, is a, a life-changing identity. That you should view yourself as, as, viewing yourself as a proclaimer of his excellencies and as a priest is, uh, is, is life-changing. Uh, one commentary that I was reading Described the priest as God's inside man. I loved that. Uh, those of you who in school live out your faith in front of friends who don't know, who don't know Christ, or maybe in your workplace in front of people that don't know Christ, you kind of know what I'm talking about, right? You, you've been there before where you're like the God guy. You know what I'm saying? It's like you, you'll, you'll, have, you'll have conversations with your coworkers, and they'll be like, hey, you're kind of into that Jesus stuff, Right? You know what I'm saying? What do you think about this? They're, they see you as the person who's got the connection with God. You're God's inside man. You know him and you've got the answers. Well, they're going to ask you a lot of questions if they think that you're God's inside man. They're going to ask you, hey, well, how do you explain this? Or you know, sometimes they're going to be asking it because they're curious and sometimes they're going to be asking you questions to try to poke holes in it. But you're going to be the representative of God to them. You're going to be the one answering those questions. They're going to look at the way that you live. They're going to say, oh, uh, you're a Jesus guy, huh? You don't do this. Uh, uh, okay, uh, we, won't, we won't invite you here because, you know, he's religious or whatever. Um, you're going to, because they know that you're like Jesus. Or sometimes they'll see you slip up and they'll say, ah, oh, I didn't think Christians acted like that. Oh, I didn't think Christians were supposed to be mad like that. And they'll be looking to poke holes in your life because they think you're God's inside man. And you are. You are God's inside man. As a priest, you are a representative of God to the world. And you are bringing the world and the, the, the people you know to God and asking him to transform them as well. Let's talk about some distinct, distinctions of uh, a priestly identity. The priests in the Old Testament didn't have any inheritance in the land. 
They, didn't have, they weren't getting a plot of land. They were the Levites. If you look on a map of, uh, of Israel, when God divided up the land between the tribes, the Levites did not get any plot of land. That was because God was supposed to be the priest's inheritance. Our inheritance is not on earth. We don't have any inheritance here waiting for us. And it's hard for us to live like that, isn't it? Not to get caught up in the day-to-day life, right? You can get so engrossed in your own identity and living for the things that are here and now, right? You can be thinking about your family, your house, your health, your job, your car, your money, your holiday plans, your vacations. And as you start to think of these things that are most present right in front of your eyes here in this world, you can forget that your inheritance is not here but you're in here, and you can start to focus more on the things that are right in front of you, right? Well, maybe it's not all of those things that you have that are distracting you from your primary identity in Christ. Maybe it's the things that you don't have that are distracting you. Do you feel like you're lacking significance in your life or purpose? And you're wandering and you're just hoping that, that you, you're try, trying to latch onto something that would make you feel significant? Do you feel overwhelmed by the weight of the world, the stresses of your responsibilities? Do you feel like you're missing out on family or jobs or friendships? And maybe those, what, those things that you're missing out on are getting you to focus on your identity here and now, your, your inheritance, the things you want right in this life. And they're pulling your eyes off of your inter- eternal inheritance. We have an inheritance, the greatest inheritance, an inheritance of eternal life with God forever. We have an inheritance that cannot be taken away because it's being guarded by God. We have eternity of perfection and freedom from sin and unity with the Lord that cannot be taken away from us. What can separate us from the love of God? This inheritance, having our mindset there and not here, will change the way we live now. If we believe our greatest inheritance is there and not here, it lifts our eyes off of all of these temporary things and puts our hope in the, the, the excellencies and the promises of God. So priests didn't have an inheritance that was on earth. Priests are also a servant of God's people. Uh, this is a passage that we rightly use to talk about the priesthood of believers. So you'll, you've heard about the priesthood of believers, maybe, uh, and and that, that doctrine is a way to say that everybody who's a believer has access to God. It's not just the, the, the pastors or the priests in the churches. It's everyone has access to God. If you are a believer, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're a part of that priesthood. I think a way that doctrine can be misapplied is to say, see, I don't need anybody else, Right? I'm a priest before God. I can go straight to God by myself. I don't need any other believer. I'm going to, you know, I've got like a lone ranger mentality, right? I can go to God. I go straight to the source. I don't need any of these other people. The rest of the Christians, they're all hypocrites or it's too complicated for me to get involved. I have this other, you know, these other uh, uh, things that I'm interested in my life or committed to. And so I'm not going to be committed to God's people, I'm just going to go straight to God because that's, you know, really, we're all priests, so why do I need anybody else? Actually, that's totally backwards. The priests were set up to serve God's people. That was what they were there for. And that's found all throughout 1 Peter. 1 Peter 
chapter 4 says, above all, loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever. Amen. You are called as a priest to be a servant of God's people. Why? Not just as a dutiful thing. Again, remember, this is all about proclaiming his excellencies. And we see that these are the blood-bought people of Christ. These are a part of our our imperishable family of God. So because God has placed such a great value in demonstrating his love to them through placing Christ's blood on them and covering their sins, we should also place a great value in them because they are objects of God's glory. We get to experience and see God's glory through each other as a, as a chosen race and royal priesthood. We have access to God as, uh, as priests. We, know, we can know God's word. Every single believer at some point knows some, even those who have just been saved, know some truth from God's word. Verse 25 of chapter 1 says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So anyone who has received God's word has heard the good news from the word of God. They they must know that truth in order to to know God. They have to believe the good news in order to have a relationship with the Lord. So, We all know at least that. But then we go on not to just know the good news that has saved us. But in verse 2 of chapter 2, like newborn infants to crave spiritual milk that we could grow by it. And taste and see that God is good. So we can see and know and experience relationship to God through his word. We get to have, we get to taste and see God through his word. We get to drink this in. Like an infant. Again, that's a dependent relationship, isn't it? Just like like we're talking about our identity as chosen people who are totally dependent on God's grace. There's no more dependent relationship than an infant that is nursing his mother. You know? All of his nutrition, everything he needs comes straight from his mother. And if his mother doesn't feed him, he doesn't grow. He dies. We get all of the nourishment and all of the pleasure we can find in knowing God through his word. We can know God by his word and we can grow in this. And we can, we can speak as though we have the oracles of God. We just read that in, in, for, in uh, 1 Peter 4 at the end there. We can, we can not only drink in God's word, but share God's word on behalf of God. So we know God's word. We seek God in prayer. We're dependent on God. Uh, we've, there's, in verse Peter 3, it talks about husbands must live with their wives as a, in a gentle and understanding... Oh, hold on, let me find this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs to you of the grace of life, so that, you, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Then again in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. 
but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Pastor Larry talked about this a couple weeks ago, where we are allowed into God's presence in prayer because God has torn the curtain in the temple from top to bottom and allowed us access to God, to him in prayer. So as priests, we have access to God in his word and access to God in prayer. We seek him and we represent him to the rest of the world. We represent him in our conduct and by our willingness to suffer. That's all throughout this book of 1 Peter. He over and over again tells us to be sober-minded, not to be caught up in our former ignorance in the ways of the world, but to be looking forward to that last day. To be subject to governments, to be citizens being subject to their government, slaves being subject to their masters, wives being subject to their husbands, church members being subject to their pastors, as we submit to those things, we show our submission to God. Jesus sets the example of that. He says, it says at the end of 1 Peter 2, it says that, that Christ suffered also, it says that, I'm sorry, let me find this here. I'm trying to speed through my notes because I know I'm running out of time. Verse 21 of chapter 2, it says, For to this you have also been called, for Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example that you might follow in his steps. When he submitted to the governments, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Because we know we serve a great sovereign God who is justly ruling over all things, we can submit to even unjust authorities in our life. Now, there's a lot of nuance that goes into that. Um, and I, I want to be gentle in, in describing those relationships. Uh, we live in a country where we have been given the freedom to submit to a government by voicing our opinion as the people. We, um, in, in relationships... We submit to our husbands sometimes by obeying God first and disobeying, not doing what a husband would call us to do that, would call us to obey God. There's lots of nuance to that. All I'm just saying is that we have an attitude where we can trust God and submit to him and trust uh, that, we, that, our, that as we are under different authorities that God has put in us, we should have attitudes of submission towards them. We represent God to the rest of the world as his priests. You have been given, you've been chosen by God to represent him, to proclaim his excellencies to the rest of the world as a priest, a royal priesthood. As I approached this passage this week, I thought of a few different people. Uh, I'm going to conclude with these thoughts. I thought... There might be people here who have been wrestling with the doctrine of election, who have been wondering whether that is biblical, um, and maybe have, have feelings about, uh, about God choosing them that would make them bristle, or that, that makes them feel insignificant. But I want us to see here that God's election of his people is, gives us a beautiful identity as those who have been loved unconditionally and chosen by God. 
I would ask you, if you are struggling with that doctrine, to go back to God's word this week and to, to, to study over the book of 1 Peter and ask, ask again for the Lord to give you wisdom as you approach this, this touchy and, um, and hard doctrine for some. Another group of people that I felt God may be trying to speak to this morning through this word is those whose hearts have grown dull. Um, maybe you feel as though as though your desire your 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 representation of God to the world has not been as a priest that you've been blending in with the rest of the world and that no one can see any difference between you and anyone else they don't think of you as God's inside man but i think god wants to reassure you this morning if you look at your life and feel like you have not been representing him well to the rest of the world, that, that he loves you unconditionally, whether you, are, whether you feel close to him or not. He chose you while you were still his enemy. And that your life still has great meaning and value to him. Um, and that it's not, you're not too far gone and maybe you're here as an unbeliever this morning and you, you are recognizing, you feel like there's no way you could approach God. Well, if, God is, if, God, if you're hearing this message today, God is calling you to believe in him and to find, uh, and to fi- and to find your, I'm sorry, I'm feeling kind of faint right now, <laughs> and to find your hope in him. Uh, let me pray, and I'm going to invite the, the team to come up. Uh, Father, uh, I ask that you would, um, yeah, that you would uh, allow your word to return void. God, I know right now I am not feeling very well, and whatever I might have communicated might feel jumbled, um, but I know that your word is clear, so God, I pray that you would show your strength even in my weakness. Lord, um, I ask these things in your name. Amen.